Second Bananas is recorded on unceded indigenous land belonging to the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Unceded means that this land was never surrendered, relinquished, or handed over in any way. We support the various strategies that indigenous peoples use to protect their land and their communities, and we commit to working with them in solidarity. We acknowledge that as people living and working on these lands, we are accountable to those who have cared for this land since time immemorial. It is our intention to continue learning how to honor this responsibility. Probably seen it. It's been talked about a lot. Yeah. That's interesting. So, yeah. But, yeah, that does what you said about a leap of imagination. Um, It does tie a little bit into uh, what we wanted to talk about today. So, maybe we should get into it. Yeah, why don't we get into it? Um, Welcome to. Second Bananas. Second Bananas. This is the podcast where we we talk about the clout behind the clout that you never heard about. That's right. Um, Uh, Yeah. Basically, this this is our podcast. We're kind of using this platform uh, as a way to shed uh, some light on some underrepresented and maybe just underappreciated people throughout um, history. Yeah, particularly people whose legacy has sort of <laughs> deeply been tied to someone a bit more well-known than them. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and that's something that we're going to kind of explore um, not only is... Uh, the people and the the these second bananas as we call them but also what it what it what constitutes a second banana mm-hmm. and how does that change over time like in some episodes we'll find that maybe someone else was the second banana and then history sort of vindicated them a little more and they became the first banana but um and some i think there are going to be some examples that we end up doing that where it's it's kind of unclear who is the second banana mm-hmm. yeah because maybe they didn't live at the same period of time and um yeah for various reasons uh yeah yes we'll always try to make the context clear of what the relationship is between our second banana that's kind of the other thing is it lets us kind of explore uh topics of our own interest and sort of you know not only bring our own opinions but our own theories and philosophies into this we're really not trying to be historians it's much more about interest and getting people interested in these things and thinking about i guess just uh society and history and fame in sort of a, a different way mm-hmm. definitely definitely um and yeah yeah definitely i i'm using this to talk about uh a lot of people that i think uh are really interesting and a lot of them happen to be um scientists and philosophers uh i if anyone who knows me joe of course yeah or if you follow me on twitter i'm uh, a huge science enthusiast um uh yeah astronomy physics chemistry i i I'm always tweeting about like latest breakthroughs that I hear. And, and one of the things that I tweet about a lot is, is genetics and uh, sort of with the advent of these new technologies that we're seeing now, stuff like CRISPR, uh, which is a gene editing tool that, that basically lets scientists uh, snip and edit genes and then put in new genes in those place uh, is really, is really starting to revolutionize the field of genetics. And yeah, but they haven't given me gills yet. I mean, Hey, if I, we just, can, <laughs> I just want to swim in the water. If we can get some of this stuff past the ethics board, oh, you, can, you can have bribe those skills, the ethics Joe. board. <laughs> uh, I'll be, I'll be the, the experiment. I'll do it. I'll I, sign up. I actually, uh, this is no joke, actually. If you've, you should check out, there's a new 
uh, documentary series on Netflix. They Ooh. literally just came out this week. I think it's called Un- Unnatural Selection. Ooh. I just watched the first episode of it yesterday, um, and it's, uh, it's, it's talking about all this mad scientist stuff that, that I get really excited about because basically you can... You can edit your genes, and this is not an, some kind of crazy, expensive technology that you need. That you need to have, you know, a two million dollar lab to do. You can do this stuff in your garage if you want, which is really wow. exciting and actually That's... really terrifying. Actually, yeah. because we're talking about, uh, you know, it's a it's a pretty simple bacteria that allows you to um, get like this CRISPR Cas9 uh, gene editing tool. And so once you have like a little bit of a culture of it, you can just keep you can just keep growing this stuff in your house. And but so, how do you control it? How do you control it is a very oh, good question. Okay. And a lot of ethicists are going over this now because there's this one um, kind of rogue scientist in particular who used to work for NASA. His name is, I forget his first name, his last name is Zayner or something. And Zayner. He, yeah. And it, he's, he's, he's uh, yeah, he's kind of like a uh, chaotic scientist guy. He is looks chaotic like, good or yeah, chaotic he look, evil? Uh, I'd say, wow. Cha- chaotic neutral, maybe? Maybe chaotic neutral. I feel like he does have some of his own kind of uh, personal feelings wrapped up in this. He's kind of doing, he wants to like, he ships, he sells like the CRISPR kit out of his garage. Josiah Zayner. Josiah Zayner, that's yeah. the guy, yeah. And he will sell uh, these CRISPR kits kind of out of his, his home and people buy them for about 150 bucks and then you can Holy essentially shit. edit your genome well, at home. Apparently in February of 2018, he said that he regretted publicly injecting himself with CRISPR. Yeah, he did that. He did that at a tech conference uh, a few years back where he had injected himself with CRISPR and he had with an edited... untested herpes treatment. Is, is, is that what it is, was? Um, yeah. It says, I mean, that's treatment. maybe like sort of a hyper. Okay, hyperbolic. that's the one that I thought he did. I thought he, he this was had the Atlantic edited his DIY genome. herpes treatment. Okay, the one that I thought, and I thought the one they touched on in Unnatural was he gave himself. Have you ever seen those pictures of those really jacked dogs or jacked yeah, like bulls, the, and they just look yeah. like they have muscles on muscles? So that's that's a variation in a single gene that. Uh, I thought at a conference he had injected it into himself because he was like, why not? He may have done that too. Get jacked right? muscles. And- like for all I know, this is like a, a repeat thing. Right. Or it could be related, right? Like they could do the same thing. Right. And so that's that's the idea is if you can find a gene that codes for something specifically, you can use CRISPR to edit that gene and And do you do that it. before you inject it into yeah, you? Yeah. Okay. So you would, Interesting. You would take your DNA. Yeah. You would use CRISPR on it to, to edit it and give it the gene that you want to re- replace whatever you're taking out of it and then uh and then you would inject that into yourself so you'd basically have to know we're getting way into the weeds here but yeah you'd have to know uh what gene affected exactly the, the thing and, you want to change and that is where and then you'd have to calibrate the the, the bacteria to do that to take to snip out that right, portion yeah right, and yeah. so it sounds very complicated but the procedure is, uh, is I, I don't think it's as complicated as people think. And there are a lot of people that are like experimenting with it. Uh, well, that's definitely a now. whole area we think about, right? Is like, um, it's like, especially because when you start editing germline cells, which are your cells that then turn into like your sex cells, like your cells, your, your sperm, mm-hmm. those lines, if you start editing the genes in them, it's per it's hereditary and it will, those modifications wow. will be passed down oh to the next God. generation. And there are experiments in the that are being put in right now. The most famous one, I think, is Bill Gates is has used it to modify mosquitoes so that they no longer carry malaria. 
Wow. Which sounds great. and In theory. Yeah. But we don't know we, how malaria exactly. affects the whole ecosystem, right? Like exactly. If mosquitoes giving malaria to animals, like, keeps right. predator levels a, down. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, like, keeps whatever, is, you know, it may, yeah, we don't, we don't know. That's such a, like, and it's almost impossible for, uh, without, yes. like, intense study beforehand. Like, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing, because we think that, you know, editing mosquitoes so they don't carry malaria, that seems that'll be a great benefit to humans. Malaria kills millions of people every year and especially young people. And, you know, having that, you know, having mosquitoes not carry malaria would be a great boon to humans, you'd think. But like you said, it's like, we don't know. Maybe this, uh, yeah, I don't. And and to be fair, like, we're not saying like, we're not trying to be the guys who are like, man must not play God. Like, I know I think that's an oversimplification. And I'm actually usually quite the opposite. I'm usually all for doing the mad scientist shit and blowing past like like, ethical barriers. But but, but, (laughs) like, you know, with like impending global collapse brought on by rising temperature, rising temperature levels in the environment, we should be thinking about everything we do. Like there's definitely, um, you know, you can't predict everything that will happen. And sometimes you have to do something and then sort of like, try and deal with the consequences but like we do need to think carefully about what we're doing yeah. in and, all, in every realm of science and technology right, right? And especially now more than ever for sure and that's what uh what a number of of leading scientists are trying to do right now and they're trying to you know bring this new technology online in a way that hopefully it won't be misused and like you can you can talk about any technology like the computer the internet all of these things which have so many widespread implications for humanity being, you know, used inappropriately or not as intended. And that's going to happen with, with any new technology. Well, and that's the truth is like, it's not even, it's, we can't not explore something because people might use it for uh, harm. We have to ultimately accept that what we have to do is try and make sure that we, we prevent that harm as much as possible. Exactly. And I think like, yeah, it's like, like as a Jewish person, you know, like I know there are people out there who think we're like a plague or like, like an insect or whatever. And would, would like to wipe us out and use this kind of technology to, you know, kill the Jewish gene, because there are actually like, there are genes in Jewish populations that, um, I don't think they're universal among all Jewish diaspora populations, but, um, like among Ashkenazi Jews, which are the, the Jews from Eastern Europe, essentially, um, they have a lot of cells in common and, and, uh, genetic hereditary things in common, including a couple of diseases that aren't found that are mostly found with that, with, along with those gene markers that are considered Ashkenazi Jewish. So yeah, mm, it's yeah. like that kind of, like, again, like yeah. that's what springs to my that mind, is, right? Is like, yeah, you think about that if you have a population that has, you know, a gene that is specific to that population and then... Now again, yeah, race isn't that simple and race is uh, a social construct based on visible characteristics right. and... There are like, like, again, like they, they say Africa has more genetic diversity than the rest of the world combined, Like mm. just African populations between areas have actually more genetic diversity. So that's, that's mm. another caveat. Yeah. But it is um, it, when you get into that, where you do have, you know, populations of humanity that have been somewhat isolated or, or yeah. breeding kind of just within that population for an extended period. That's when you do get those kind of yeah. genetic markers that you can identify, uh, you know, with certain cultures and ethnicities. Uh, yeah. And it's dangerous mm-hmm. then. I mean, again, I don't want to set off alarm bells. I think people, I think we're right to think about this stuff and be like, Hey, like we should think about this and think about how people might use it and be wary of that. Yeah. But and, again, but- we can also, you know, like, like 
chronic illness, chronic pain. Like there's so many genetic conditions that are like debilitating to people. And, and yes, and not everyone with those conditions may want to get rid of them, but there, I'm sure there are people that would, and we have no right to deny them a fuller life if that's what they want to do. Right. No. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and that is the thing that there are a lot of diseases where we have identified those genetic markers Mm -hmm. and things like, uh, so things like Parkinson's, um, certain kinds of, of, uh, blindness uh is is inherent male in pattern genes. baldness, male pattern baldness. Is, is another one yeah right? these like, are all things that uh could could very well be cured uh through through technologies like crispr in the coming yeah years. even just you know like um people with uh because there are certain um genetic groups that have are more likely to contract certain non-genetic diseases because of just weaknesses in their in their DNA. Like, I guess I shouldn't say, that's where it also gets complicated to saying stuff like a weakness in the DNA yeah. can also <laughs> become sort of like racist or ableist. Well, it's true, even. yeah. And and, uh, and I've, had, I've had a lot of conversations with, with people, uh, especially my wife, about stuff like designer babies. And, um, and it's true, once you start getting into the weeds of that, some of... Yeah, some, some of my of opinions is... might seem like unsavory, but it's well. I think there's yeah. there's there's room for those opinions too. Like my my personal belief is this is going to be this is we should we should get to the episode <laughs> soon. <laughs> we should, but uh, one we can my, talk more about this. Like, one of my like... honest to god beliefs, and again, I'm not a woman. I don't have a uterus. Sorry, I don't have a uterus. I am not. I am not a a, a person with a uterus. <laughs> um, and I I I do believe that we would be better off if we could build artificial wombs and. Mm-hmm. We and people could still have natural births if they so chose, mm-hmm. but like childbirth is dangerous. It is it is dangerous, um, and 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 it can kill the mother and the baby. And up until modern medicine, it was you know that's it was very considered a dangerous thing to go through. Mm-hmm. Um, even still, we you know like infant mortality rates and and maternal mortality rates have gone way down, but we, there's still chances and there's still th- so many things that can go wrong. And I think giving women that option or sorry, giving people with uteruses that option is a really powerful thing for their lives and their choice and their safety. So, and I do believe that I think it would become widespread adopted, adopted widespread, you know, eventually. And that, that'll be an interesting day. And a lot of people are like kind of horrified by that. But I mean, that is one of the things that conjures images of like matrix, like test tubes. Well, And that's (laughs) fair. And I think that's a danger that we have to watch out for, but yeah, like, fundamentally what's the difference between two people two or more people giving a genetic sample and having a baby grown in a lab than a baby grown in a mother's womb you know like and it's like if it's still a human being and like we can argue souls and stuff like that but yeah and i I mean that that comes down on that's a big part of where you side on it a lot of the time and that was the whole idea when in vitro was first coming around you like oh yeah test two babies people like what no you can't this isn't natural and i mean how many people that you know couldn't have babies before are now proud parents because of that technology yeah exactly we already do have artificial wombs uh for animals i think there there are artificial rooms that calves or goats well and what about baby premature babies that are born you know five five months premature incubators they would never have survived before so and what's the difference fundamentally between a baby that was that came out of a womb and went into an incubator for five months five months is a long time yeah like the baby is not fully formed at that point yeah and uh and what's the difference between that baby and a baby that's been nine months in an incubator specifically designed for that purpose true yeah that's 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 a really good point um i think it is it's going to be tough for people to get over the stigma of like you know imagine imagine having like this like bassinet style like machine in your house where you're just watching your baby kind of 
develop uh, yeah. outside of you, I think. A lot yeah, of or even, and then, well, then there's that. also the fear of, you know, um, then, yeah, you no longer carry that child within your body. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, like there's a danger, like you're, uh, women are in danger when they're pregnant of being hurt or killed. But like, what about the, the feeling of like not having that in your home? What if it needs to be in like a hospital and monitored and everything, right? Yeah. Like that's, that's a whole, that presents a whole other suite of conundrums that like, I think are just different problems that we need to work out. Right. Yeah. But and it's definitely something that you do need to think about without getting alarmist about it. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, yeah, it's just one of the things of a whole suite of issues that this technology is, is bringing online. One and, more uh, thing that, yeah, I just wanted to touch on was that, yes, this is, uh, it, it is quite, um, quite scary what, what this can do on as these examples have proven. But I do think that the potential for this technology to do more good than harm is really there. I think what it is, is it's the unknown that's most yeah. frightening about it. And I think the truth is we're at a point in time in humanity where we have to change and face the unknown in a very quick, like in so many ways we are, we are facing a future that is very uncertain. Right. And the only way we're going to make it a better future for future for generations is if we face it. And we know, we understand, yeah, there's going to be things that terrify us that maybe we don't understand, but that are still going to be beautiful and that we'll have to sort of learn as we go right. and we're going to make mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. And and you can just and imagine. Not just in science, I think um, in government, in finance, in, yeah. in economic systems and what we do, we are, we have to make massive changes just to survive as a species. Oh, for sure. We're not, if we keep going the way that we are, like it's. The world is not sustainable. We yeah, need absolutely. these breakthroughs in science in order to save our civilization, yeah. essentially. Uh, yeah, which is daunting. But then when you look at usually the real reason with these breakthrough technologies is that you you imagine them being, yes, very groundbreaking. But what you don't see is the way that they're going to be combined with other existing technologies. Absolutely. And so you can just imagine how something like CRISPR and gene editing when combined with AI and machine learning and things that can identify all those patterns in your DNA, how that's going to be used. Uh, well, and even, you know, we've already had the cases where coders have admitted that they don't, they don't know how some of their self-learning algorithms work anymore. Like Twitter and YouTube are two prime examples where it's like, I mean, we can make guesses and, but it's like, because it, the, the algorithm corrects itself in a lot of ways right. and changes itself while we're writing it, we have to kind of watch it right. and just like guess and hopefully, and make changes to it that work. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, you're just, you're going to see this stuff being used uh, greatly in the field of uh, emerging like synthetic biology where we're just cooking up, you know, bacteria and other organisms in the lab that don't exist in nature, but could profoundly shape the way we live and especially for stuff like cleaning up in the environment there have been students that have created in the lab new bacteria there's a bacteria i don't know what its name it's got some weird technical name (laughs) that they've engineered that essentially can consume ocean plastic uh break it down right yeah and the only byproducts are essentially like water and oxygen so wow you could like I said, this harps back to we don't know what would happen if we released one of these organisms in the wild. And what would happen when it mute because bacteria yeah, mutates it changes. exponentially yeah. fast compared to us. And so it's crazy to think like, yes, uh, we yeah. can have all the best intentions and still have things go horribly wrong. But, and, um, but I'm we, very hopeful. But we can't, we can't do nothing, I think, yeah. is the, the real answer. We have to do something here. Right. Um, I think 
(laughs) This is all, this whole conversation and everything that we're talking about in it is uh, kind of thanks to our second banana today, right, Wes? That's right. This is, um, that's kind of what we're getting into now. We've been talking about DNA and genes and um, yeah, Joe, you got, we got DNA. What, um, what do you know about DNA? Uh, it's the building blocks of life, baby. I learned that from G.I. Joe, the movie. That's exactly. Deoxyribonucleic acid. Wow, you know the full name. That's That's great. I learned a lot from that G.I. Joe movie. Also, I learned you can turn, you can turn people into snake people, uh, with DNA. You can, um, you can, you can rule the world as the head of Cobra, the terrorist organization. Uh, Cobra. Cobra Cobra. Law. Yeah, Cobra Law. Thank you. G.I. Joe has taught us a lot over the years. Um, but... Uh, um, not, not all of it good, <laughs> but I think the DNA PSAs. Thing is allowed. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, but I don't know if you know, but who, who would you think is associated with that? There are some famous scientists I know, associated I with know DNA. I know the name Watson and Crick. Are yeah. The, yeah. Okay. The, good. The, good. The key ones. And I know that this is kind of a thing that we, we probably should talk about. We probably will talk about, and you've probably already got on your little, outline here but that you know there's a lot of things of like these this scientist discovered this thing um when in truth often they were working with a whole team Mm -hmm. and because they were the one who sort of made the little breakthrough Mm -hmm. um or whatever they get their name on it but really it's you know like up to a hundred people are really responsible yes and we science is built just like any other sort of um piece like type of knowledge that humans have is it's built on previous knowledge that we already have mm-hmm. and it always builds on what we already know so i'm guessing that there are other people yeah that, yeah there's um, actually besides watson and crick there there certainly are and um yeah that's the thing especially with um you know the science being done you know in the early in the early 1900s and even before that before we had internet or or even you know telephones ways to communicate information uh, more easily we um yeah we're starting to learn that there are a lot more people that were involved yeah we usually don't hear about those ones with those earlier um scientists because normally you'd only hear about the people that were you know got got like the nobel prize for it or or had some great invention that everyone ended up adopting and so that's usually why most people um uh, yeah, associate this discovery of the structure and function of DNA with Watson and Crick. But uh, what a lot of people don't know is that they had a lot of help from another individual, um, and that person was Rosalind Franklin. Uh, Ooh, yeah, so, a woman, no less. She was, and so yes. what time period was this? This was uh, this would have been in the 1940s and. 50s mostly okay yeah. okay yeah. so that would be the time period where most of this takes place um just to give people a context of you know where where women's rights were at yes the um how women were viewed especially in the scientific community um, yeah weighs heavily um, but and also the way this. that like people sort of view the 60s as sort of the women's lib movement but a lot mm-hmm. again like building on that idea of like we we continually add to everything culturally and society knowledge wise the 40s and 50s were also a time where the 40s especially because all the men went to war in mm-hmm. a lot of like in you know in western countries for world war 2 and, and other countries too but like and it, the women ended up doing a lot of jobs that were traditionally for men mm-hmm. and it 
it it made a whole. I think that was what a lot of people say is that it made a whole generation of women who were like, well, we can do this. Yeah. Like they had never done. They a lot of them had never done it before. Like especially like you know that's where Rosie the Riveter comes from, right? It's mm-hmm. like these women doing this work that's supposed to be for men. Yeah. Or was traditionally viewed, and not that women never did it. It's just it was traditionally mm-hmm. viewed as men's work. Yeah, very much so. And if not for that, maybe the '60s would have been very different. But yeah, you know, I agree. And uh, and yeah, Rosalind. Although she wasn't really a suffragette, she wasn't. She didn't necessarily get out there and campaign for like women's rights or anything. Um, she was from a somewhat affluent family, and they very much were part of the like that the social movements of the time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, she was born in 1920, I guess. Uh, she was the second of five children, um, and they were they were somewhat wealthy family for the time. They were of Jewish heritage. Um, I think you'll find that's pretty normal, um, especially uh, in these times um, that uh, a lot of the people that and still to this day, I think a little bit that a lot of people who do a lot of this work, especially like scientific work and sort of like that kind of stuff, like there is there is like a connection between like uh, affluence, wealth or like and and being able to sort of pursue these insane dreams Mm -hmm. or these really challenging careers that require a lot of hard work and sacrifice Yeah, because you can afford to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, and not that that's always true and that's always interest of interest to me, but I think it's important that we do acknowledge that at the very least. For sure. And, and like you said, this, this was gearing up, this was in, uh, you know, this was a decade or so, like before world war two, uh, she like her family was involved in the government and 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 the social movements of the age as mm-hmm. I was saying her father was a banker uh, and he he taught some classes at one of the local colleges a Jewish uh, banker yeah eh? <laughs> yeah, <right? laughs> yeah. Uh, and also um she had another uncle that was that was pretty involved he was actually the first home secretary um this is all in London oh, wow. uh, I should say in London England so what um, you mean by home secretary is yeah. it's, it's sort of the equivalent to a cabinet minister yes very or much a, so a, a secretary of like yeah. state or whatever exactly I think what's, yeah. is is the secretary of the interior the same as home secretary in the states sure. i think so this home secretary is basically about like internal issues to the nation yes right yes. okay yeah and so he was the first home secretary um <laughs> in in uh, london at the time that was um practicing jewish faith so uh that was pretty that was pretty noteworthy um, do you think they put parentheses the around his name <laughs> Like Maybe. they do, <laughs> just to make sure all the neo Nazis. Sorry, I mean it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me at the time, but um, oh, I'm sure he faced prejudice. Yeah, yeah, but That's... they they had a close knit community, and so she is Jewish. Yep. Okay. She Interesting. Is of Jewish heritage, and um, uh, from a young age, it was it was pretty apparent that um, she was a very smart girl. Um, right. Right. And she was very interested in the sciences, maths, um, even even literature and English. Um, but you know, that, that wasn't really what girls were supposed to be into at the time. Is <laughs> they're, they're mostly just expected to, uh, you know, be, become, uh, good housewives and, and mothers. But there had been a bit of a precedent of female scientists kind of before this. Or ma- there, like there had been a few. especially, right? Um, yeah. Yes. Yes. Like, I think of like Ada Lovelace. Yes. Yes. Good, that's a little bit earlier and, but same country. Yeah. And, uh, and, and yeah, I think like, I, again, like I don't want to like detract or anything i think like it's interesting to see how these things you know like we sort of see it as like this breakthrough that happens all of a sudden but like Mm -hmm. it's often because of many pioneers sort of going through the process and making it just making being leading by example right so Mm -hmm. yeah 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 and yes there were some other scientists at the time uh female uh noteworthy scientists but um as you see in this story um yeah the environment uh 
was somewhat hostile towards them, and huh. they really had an uphill battle uh, uh, in a lot of these cases. Um, her parents were actually very accepting of her, her, you know, her her hobbies and that's her, awesome. Yeah, yeah, they were they were quite progressive, and they clearly actually, like I think that's that's something you'll see. Yeah, yeah, often is you know like um you know we are raised by our parents, and I think like that's always something that interests me is like who were these people's parents and did they have to fight against what their parents taught them and everything? Or did Mm -hmm. they sort of, was it sort of like always around? And it's often, it can be either one a lot of the time, you know, though. Yeah. Though her parents were very accepting of her, um, you know, her, her passions of science, especially, uh, they didn't necessarily want her to be a scientist. They kind of, they were hoping she'd get more into, uh, social work so she they could right, yeah, help to with like those kind of like yeah. movements and you know help help the Jewish community with uh, like things like that yeah well um, especially in the 1930s and 1940s yeah, yeah of course so yeah you don't blame for that but um but still they were like yeah you want to get into science go ahead and they sent her off to Ooh. uh St. Paul's School for Girls which was at the time I think one of the few schools that offered classes in physics and chemistry and math to to female students. Wow. Usually it was only the males that got to do science and math, but um so St. Paul's was a little, was a little ahead of its time and then um and of course Rosalind uh when she was at that school she absolutely like crushed all her classes and was She crushed it. Yeah, crushed it. Girl boss. Yeah, and by age Hashtag 15, girl boss. She was she was pretty sure she wanted to be um a scientist or Yeah be into physics and chemistry. Um, so yeah, in 1938, she uh, enrolled in Newham College. Uh, this is at the University of Cambridge. Newham. Yeah, Newham. Prefer, Love that, prefer Newham. that to Oldham. <laughs> the so. Oldham isn't as good as the Newham. Oldham, no, no. They don't have as good a curriculum either. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, and so she was uh, She was probably one of only about 500 women at the school, um, at the campus, which at the time had probably lots of uh of other sexist policies but one of the ones was that the uh the student body could be no more than 10 percent female so whoa oh my god that's where that number comes from 10 percent yeah so uh yeah that's that's just one of one of those things uh you think about that you think about like 10 percent only a certain number of them getting in they have to prove themselves then they're basically surrounded by not them exactly yeah, we don't we we don't necessarily talk about that anymore. It's kind of some people view, it, and it is shameful, but like it's sort of like sometimes glossed over. But it's like that's the kind of stuff that that real institutional barriers, um, really do shape, uh, demographics mm-hmm. of of um everything in society, mm-hmm. and that's like yeah, like no wonder yeah. she was one of the only women in the sciences, right? Yeah, like, and it makes you wonder, <laughs> you know. How many other Rosalind Franklins could have yes. been out there had we admitted that, more that, of them? Because like they <laughs> yeah. didn't get in exactly. to that, yeah. to that or 10%, just weren't right? allowed their like true passions to flourish. Or even before that, you know, like just like we're like, you know what, this isn't worth it. Yeah, you know, I'm not. I don't. I don't right. have the energy. I don't love this enough to fight. Exactly. And, or like you know, like I have other things that I need to fight for, especially at the time, right? Mm-hmm. Like she could have easily gone the other way and said, you know what, it will be. It'll it'll be easier for me just to go into social work and fight. But well, you see Rosalind, like her, her fatigue with the, with the system and the way it it works is plays very much into this story. (laughs) Okay. Um, But we'll get to that. that. Yeah. Yeah. So in 1941, she, uh, she earned her bachelor's degree in natural sciences and she specialized in chemistry. um, And then she received a scholarship to study phase chromatography well uh, with a famous that's chemist. a big word yeah it's uh let's break it down phase chroma. chromaton 
photography. Yeah, and according to Wikipedia, it's a laboratory technique for the separation of a mixture. The mixture is dissolved in a fluid called the mobile phase, which it carries through a structure holding another material called the stationary phase. The various constitutes of the mixture travel at different speeds, causing them to separate. The All separation right, is based on differential partitioning between the mobile and stationary phases. Okay. Shut up, So basically, nerd. yeah, it's no, separating yeah. things out, and, uh, and that allows them to, I guess, get a better idea of the structure of things. Um, I still don't understand it. But yeah, yeah, okay, that's yeah. a bit. That's a bit uh, can, more complicated. That's can, okay. You guys can Google phase chromatography. Right. It's not a. It's not a huge issue. That's just what she was learning um, in that's 1941. Cool. Like that's interesting. Like, yeah, it kind clearly of just, she's much smarter than me because yeah. I'm like what, and she's like, yeah, I get this. Yeah. So basically, she's doing cool science. Um, <laughs> and oddly enough, the chemist who she was working with. Uh, Ronald G.W. Norrish. Um, Ronald G.W. Yeah, Norrish. Yeah, he also what got a, name. Uh, a Nobel Prize for his the... work. Um, so that could be two Nobel Prizes maybe that well, uh, she missed out on. Well, you know, life. you hang out in the right company. As this was 1941. Yeah. In 1942, as we all know, World War II, really heating up. Yeah. Um, it got bad then. Yeah, yeah. It was not, uh, that was not a good year for uh, global conflict. Um, yeah, so it was then that What her... was a good year for global conflict? Well, I would say... Uh, um, uh, uh, pre, pre-civilization, I guess? Yeah. Uh, like... <laughs> wait, 19... 19- when the war ends, 1950. I guess yeah, 1946. <laughs> 19, was it 1946? We'll go with that. We'll go. With that. I hope so. Yeah. Um, so yes, in 1947 for sure things calmed down. It was that was a good year. Yeah, it was a really good year. Um, yeah, wars getting in full swing, and so her her focus shifted a little bit with her work. Right. Um, and she went to uh, in London. She was still in London, and she served as a air warden uh, there. Um, however, her skills as a researcher were soon called back into play uh, when she was offered a position with British Coal Utilization Research Association. Whoa. Uh, that's also in southern England. Um, and there she began learning about molecular biology and a technique called crystallography um, that she would later employ um, so to study the physical chemistry. So did she invent this technique or was this just what she She did she not used. invent it, okay. but she became... Probably the world's leading expert in in the implementation of this it. technique. See, that's yeah. cool, and that's a good example of what we're talking about. Someone else invented crystallography, mm-hmm. but she sort of perfected it. Yes, right or yes. not? I guess I, perfected is a bad word because there's no such thing as perfecting something in science. But yeah. she she sort of like elevated its practice and and used it, utilized it quite efficiently. Yeah. So I think I think <clears throat> you know without formally acknowledging, she was probably yes the the world leader in. Uh, in crystallography maybe not wow. at that time but she would soon become become yeah. known for it so yeah she began learning uh about molecular biology as you can imagine one of the i guess most important re- resources at this time and especially during wartime uh was coal yeah. um you know, burn it was that coal. used for, for everything you use it for trans- transportation manufacturing um yeah so yeah there was this inherent value in in learning more about the properties of coal and how it could be better better utilized yeah, uh, especially get that for coal money coal, coal money yeah yeah Woo! um so much money for research just i mean like yeah. today just, just like, like fossil today, fuels and today. <laughs> God. Um, so yeah uh so she did she was leading uh kind of the effort in this this coal research um and at the time it was known that coal was porous and it had different densities 
Um, well, yeah, because you can figure that out by looking at it, right? Yeah, but in terms of its <laughs> like microstructure, yeah, and people couldn't necessarily identify right what what that was or and, how that what that what that would cause the coal to do right. right, and you couldn't tell just by looking at like two hunks of coal like how they differed like on yeah. the microscopic properties. You Unless to... you were like the old guy in the coal mine that had been down there for eighty years and, and he's just like, like this just like coal. takes the coal like like licks it. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, this is that's this good is the coal. coal. <laughs> you gotta burn like that's the, so, that was the guy they relied. On yeah, before so, this. So, and, and those guys died all the time because they were old. Yeah, and licking coal constantly. Yeah, coal. <laughs> so <laughs> all of them died of like like lung cancer, basically. Totally. So or like stomach cancer or whatever. Failing failing the uh access to to the old coal prospector, yeah. uh, Rosalind Franklin was was definitely uh the next best thing. Well she saved those guys. They got to live like another ten years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they had a good life. They did. They did. <laughs> They died uh, doing what they loved. Yeah. Licking coal. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Love it. Um, yeah. So she, she would use gases. She'd probe the density of coal. Um, and she learned that, like, depending on, on where these voids or these, these kind of, like, pockets of empty space were in the coal, you could kind of get different properties from the coal when you heated it. And, for instance, some types of coal would, would turn into graphite when you heated it, and other types would turn into like a kind of glass or oh, what like, kind of like that's interesting like i didn't know that they turned it yeah i don't know i remember glass. reading that and that's why i said like oh this was the glass coal but yeah like, yeah it's, like i wonder if that's a specific type of glass yeah I, I imagine it's some kind of or... like obsidian type of glass but um, right yeah because it wouldn't because it wouldn't be like clear i don't, I think don't so. know that's a good i, guess, I had yeah. a, I had a hard time trying to find images of what this like coal glass uh looked like but uh, yeah I... so graphite is like a coal thing yeah, yeah, you get like the graphite that we get in pencils. Yeah, yeah. I think that's okay. Interesting. It's kind of a coal based thing because wow. I always thought it was like lead based or something. No, there. That's that's an old because there used to be lead in yeah. pencils, but lead is fucking poisonous. And then <laughs> so and then after watching the Chernobyl like series, I was like, graphite. What? That's like. I don't want to go near a pencil anymore because nah, it's graphite. Yeah, but graphite whatever. doesn't have like a half life. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's different. I think it's, it's different. It's, well, it might be a different kind of graphite, yeah. or the graphite might absorb. Anyway, yeah. I haven't seen Chernobyl yet, so yeah, it's not bad. Okay, good. Um, yeah, so so did pioneering work uh, with coal that uh, probably saved lots of these coal producers like millions in the long run. And this is in like nineteen forty dollars, so so they could you know they could sort their coal and ship it to millions the right place. In nineteen forty, is like quadrillions. Quadrillions, yes, literally, yeah, quadrillions. That's, so, that's the official number of the yeah. second bananas podcast so her yeah she had she was doing good work she had like inherent value that was you know saving people lots of money yeah and um yeah. she saved the coal company's money <laughs> yeah, so maybe and isn't that the most important thing yeah in not life? i mean maybe not too much foresight but at the well, time all, she was doing hot science yeah she was <laughs> and like that's a whole other interesting thing is like you know we talk about coal as such a like sort of like Oh, today, like we think, because like we know it's like super bad for the environment, mm -hmm. uh, bad for our lungs mm -hmm. to burn it, to be in close proximity to the smoke that comes from it. Mm -hmm. uh, and she did that. She did that. She did that. She like she made coal more more important and she probably did. contributed to, you mm -hmm. know, in an abstract way to like greenhouse emissions. Yes, very much so. You know, and like that's the thing about science is like 
that's that's a great example of like doing something that is good like oh it was good like it 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 helped us learn more about the world around us and mm-hmm. and what we can what we can do with it and th- and how the world works which i i believe genuinely is never a bad thing mm-hmm. but yeah there were, there were consequences to it and she wasn't even probably aware of them at the time totally uh like, no yeah, i don't think it was no, even even the earliest rumblings about global warming was like the 1970s so um well, at least on widespread yeah yeah well and like an, an understanding that, that yeah that that was what was causing it but, yeah, yeah true um yeah you could argue that she may not have had the foresight of someone like a uh an oppenheimer or an einstein when well they even first i don't know a- i think, atom I think some of that, that this is was gonna like, like ruin everything yeah, in the future. and the splitting the atom is like a way more intense like you know that's like and i think a lot of that has been mythologized too like mm-hmm. we can we'll get we'll actually get into that in my julian episode about how um looking at history in certain ways can often make it feel like um things were seen as as More monumental sinister. at the time oh, yeah. that weren't necessarily right um because they didn't have the hindsight to know and it's sort of been changed over time but i think like to be fair like i don't i don't want to i'm not Rosalind is not canceled here. I, I get it. No. She she did what she did. It was 1945. Yeah. And for all intents and purposes, she was he- helping the war effort. And- yeah. And again, like, is the, you know, like, w- if she had known at the time, you know, if the, someone had come back in time and been like, if you do this, this is going to cause global emissions to rise 40%. Mm-hmm. She probably would have been like, yeah, but we're getting bombed. Yeah. You know, true. like. <laughs> and you know what? Her work in DNA, which is later pioneering a lot of technologies today that we're using to clean up the environment. So I think, yeah, I mean, maybe it balanced out. I think we can, we can give her a pass again. Yeah. I think it's just more about talking about how we can't look through the science, the lens of scientific discoveries as just good or bad. Mm-hmm. They sort of are there and we, it, the, the applications of them are good or bad and we need, and or hurtful or harmful, not good and bad is sort of a, mm-hmm. a moral judgment. And I think hurtful and harmful is a much more practical under or helpful and harmful is much more, practical and 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 safer index to use when we're talking about those things because it's not saying like hey you did a bad or you did a good it's like yeah well what you did was very harmful and we need you to help us correct that harm or what you did was really helpful and we're very grateful for it yeah and yeah and i think that's a good that's a good context to to view a lot of these um initial scientific discoveries at least um so yeah, so uh, her work with coal earned her uh, a PhD from Cambridge, um, and she went on to write uh, five coal-related papers by 1949. Five coal-related right. papers. And I have not written one coal-related paper. I have not. And, and I'm older than her at this point, <laughs> I think. That's right, yeah. So yeah. she's accomplished a lot by 1949. Yeah, and... like she had a PhD at 25. Mm-hmm. Like I, I just realized. That's it's quite wow. impressive. Um, and uh, oddly enough, those papers are still cited today. Um, that's yeah, that's cool. Yeah. According to, uh, an article by Lynn Elkin, uh, this was written in, uh, physics today, Franklin's papers quote, changed the way physical chemists view the microstructures of coal and related substances. Wow. Um, wow. so yeah, her work is, is, is still being is used like fo- foundational essentially. I would yeah. say like both her work in coal and, genetics are foundational that's really cool very much so yeah and so yeah this enlightening work that she was doing with coal caught the attention of uh some french scientists and in 1947 she moved to paris where she was offered a job at the central laboratoire uh of chemical services and they're working under the scientist jacques mearing jacques mearing jacques mearing yes she learned um she learned the technique of x-ray diffraction Whoa. and uh 
this is a technique that allows scientists to sort of uh, see the 3D structure of molecules by wow. um, by essentially just like blasting them with x-rays and then looking at the different ways uh, that light is kind of diffracted through the different layers and then using photographic techniques to kind of capture that. But you also have to do a lot of precise calculations to interpret what these images mean interesting because it was 1940 the photography is still kind of pretty yeah and fuzzy. pre pre computers yeah like that's the other thing too is a lot of this stuff is being done by people yeah you know like that's what's always interests me too is like like you had to i think like there were certain skills in science and like and to be fair a lot of that was done by um marginalized people <laughs> like yeah. i think the um the i know that movie the what was it um hidden figures mm-hmm is a great example of like, I think that movie like obviously is a little Oscar baity, but yeah. I think it makes a really good point that like there were literally people whose job it was, the jobs were replaced by computers and often they were, you know, women of color, people who wouldn't necessarily get um, the recognition. Their job was just to sit there and, and, you know, calculate like one trajectory mm-hmm. because like there's so many variables on it that it would take them all day just to calculate that yeah yeah yeah, yeah a lot of people yeah forget that humans were the computers before the computers yeah big time and so she was very much a computer um and she took pride Beep, in boop, she <laughs> a computer yeah and she was very she was very proud about her her mythology and the way she conducted her science and that was really what she was all her about her mythology or her methodology her methodology yeah. sorry yeah. yeah and she was she was very much all about doing good science and obtaining good data. That was that That's was really cool. her passion, yeah. and that was really, from what I can tell, what she cared about the most was was getting correct information about nature. Um, wow. So yeah, she she absolutely loved her time in Paris. This was, I think, in Paris, the scientific culture was quite a bit different from what it was uh, in in America. Different from America and London. Oh, right, because she worked... Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, as I was saying, she did love her time in Paris. She was doing good work. Eating I a mean, lot of baguettes. Eating lots of baguettes and croissants. Yeah. Uh, lots of butter. Um, but she had, like, friends in her lab. Oh, yeah, they for would, sure. They would go and, like, go to a cafe ever, or they would, like, go on hiking trips and stuff. So she actually had friends like the, and coworkers. Bon yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so, that would be cool, too, yeah. So yeah, she was she was really liking her time in Paris. She was doing great work. Um, she was becoming like fluent in French. She loved French cuisine. Took up French cooking. So this was post-war, right? Yeah, this because, is because like this yeah, is in, the uh, French was France was occupied by the Germans at one point. Yeah, this would this War would have been in 1947. Okay, cool. So yeah, yeah it's like that would be this interesting good, because this is the good war, the, the yeah, good conflict, the, the good year, the good <laughs> yeah. year. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah, and like and that would have been like France would have been interestingly France would have been like rebuilding because mm. <clears throat> they were like. They got blown out got fucked after up, yeah. World War Two. Yeah. So that would it must have been a period where, you know, sort of like in a way that was like because this is the this is sort of like the 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 seeds of the the atomic age. Right. Like the mm. sort of like 1950s modern uh technology will save us you know technology is beautiful yeah uh, it will bring a, usher in a new era of yeah. prosperity and peace. Right. I think that it was at that age that people were looking to science for. Uh, they were seeing like the achievements that it could bring. Well, and like, this is post atomic bomb. Again. Yeah. Like this is they people have realized the power of science yes. in a way that I think wasn't really understood before. Right. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. So she was doing great work in science. Super happy there. Um, but then um, this would be in stark contrast to the the next portion of, of her life oh, and no. career. That's frustrating. Um, and that's where our top bananas, uh, Watson and Crick, come into play. 
James Watson and Francis Crick. Um, so yeah, Rosalind was uh, she was somewhat lured away from her position at Paris uh, with the offer of a, a research fellowship from Sir John T. Randall's Medical Research Council, uh, and that was at King's College in London. Um, now, the fellowship on its own uh, might not have been enough to persuade her from her, her lovely life uh, in Paris, uh, but it just so happened that the research that they were doing was going to involve decoding the structure and function of DNA. Whoa. And that was really, like we were talking about uh, atomic science, but uh, right now at that period, it was that was kind of the hottest thing at the time. In was, science, I think. Though. Yeah. Because like I think like what had happened was uh, the atomic the atomic bomb detonation had sort of um made that more like again like there's there's stuff in scientific circles Mm -hmm. and then there's stuff in the wider you know general population and pop culture or whatever you want to call it society and i i I think the genetic the gene the dna stuff didn't really start taking on significance in pop culture till the 60s or the 70s yeah in my opinion exactly Um, so this wasn't it wasn't quite in the you know the you know the zeitgeist of the everyday person, but but in terms scientists, of science were really researchers, on yeah, fire about this. exactly, yeah, yeah, and that's interesting. Again, like they sort of are in tandem to each other, like because they are. It's essentially like we need to look at the fundamental building blocks of existence of of whatever of what 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 makes everything ever what it is, right? Right. Like both atoms and DNA are a form of that. Like right. finding the very basis of our of our existence. Exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah. so of course she was very interested in this. And that's what tipped the scales. And she's like, Okay, I'll go back to London. Um, even though like, you know, the scientific community there is pretty shitty. But um I'm gonna Ugh. do this because I'm gonna do the good science and I'm gonna unlock the keys. Was of it life. do you think like really do you think it was because she felt like this was important work? Or did she just like need a fucking job? That's no. what, that's interesting to no, me. No, no, she had a great job at Paris and she that's, didn't have to leave it. That's really interesting. Yeah. So it must she must have at least realized that this even if she like she may not have been like, Oh, this is gonna be groundbreaking, but mm-hmm. she was probably like, This looks like a really good opportunity for me to expand another area of science. Mm-hmm. And, and so what was she, she was in, in Paris. What was she looking at specifically with x-ray? Um, in Paris, she was using it. To be honest, I don't know exactly what the subject matter was, but I know that this is all I really know is that this is where she learned those techniques. So it was right, very okay, much yeah. whatever they were doing. It always generally involved like x-ray diffraction which is what she used and that's how that's where she developed this technique and became like the expert on it that's interesting um, i and, wonder i wonder if she if she had it like how much of an idea she had how groundbreaking this research would be yeah you know? yeah no i'm not sure and and to be honest that's one of the things about her legacy is that um and one of the things that kind of gets me about uh scientists is this groundbreaking work that they do in the past that they never get to realize the impacts that yeah. they have on well, there are, the world there are, before they like, die. There are so many people that die before mm-hmm. they're appreciated. Yeah. Like in every, you know, discipline yeah. um, of human, of human development, yeah. uh, artists, you know, scientists, uh, like philosophers, especially usually don't get appreciated till after they die. Yeah. Um, that's such a fascinating thing. Right. So, yeah. And it's one of the things that, you know, it only gets me in the feels sometimes. Yeah, totally. But they never got the recognition when oh, they were alive. Wes. And she is very oh, much. He's crying right now, everybody. <laughs> it's okay. I'll be okay. I'll be okay. Um, so just so you guys know, <laughs> this 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 ending may not be a big celebratory one. It might not be, but I'll try and I'll try and end it on some some positive notes. Sweet. Uh, 
so yeah, Franklin lured away from Paris. She's back at in London working at King's College. Um, She's getting like slapped on the ass in the lab. It's very um, hard. I mean, it's not. It's 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 not quite that bad, but I mean, it's, it isn't. It is. Do I mean, you know it's that? that bad. It probably was that bad. Like I it's know. like full. It's like Mad Men, but with test tubes, basically. I think so, especially Have, James Watson. He's kind of a, really. We'll okay, learn, so that's we'll learn that he's a bit of a douche. Okay, and good. I want to. I want to. Especially James Watson canceled. A, he's canceled hard. Especially, we can, we're going to cancel Watson hard. Yeah, we'll get into it. I I I've got an article here. Of, yeah. Like, just getting into, into how canceled he is, but spill yeah. the tea. Yeah, yeah. We'll get there. We'll okay, get there. Let's um, do it. So uh, this guy that that brought her on at at uh, King's College, his name was uh, John T. Randall, um, and he was especially interested in utilizing Franklin's newly acquired X-ray diffraction skills to get the most detailed images possible of DNA's molecular structure. But when Randall brought her in, um, another another uh, researcher, another scientist at King's College, uh, his name was Maurice Wilkins. He was already working at DNA at King's College. Oh, interesting. And um, he happened to be away on vacation when oh. Franklin started. So when he came back to the office after his vacation, he found that like Franklin had like upgraded the lab with all this like x-ray diffraction equipment. <laughs> and his- I like that she did that. I like that she had the balls to like just be like, yeah, get me this shit. I need this shit. Yeah, this equipment sucks. Yeah, and I think she might have even better equipment. I think she, she it may not have been malicious or anything. No, no, it wasn't because like, she was brought on to do this <clears throat> research, so it right, was required. Yeah. And I think she actually like built the X-ray diffraction machine oh, herself, wow. or not physically, but like gave all the specs and like. Where is the HBO miniseries? Yeah, where yeah. is it? Get yeah. on that HBO. We should get it. Um, yeah. But yeah, so she had upgraded the lab and also kind of like stolen his research assistant. His name was Raymond Gosling and huh. uh, had kind of acquired him to now like Related focus more to Ryan on Gosling. Uh, I would really hope so. Maybe. That would be dope. That would <laughs> yeah. be extremely dope. Raymond Gosling, Ryan Gosling. They got to be. Yeah. RG. <laughs> RG, baby. Um, yeah. So Maurice Wilkins wasn't too happy with Rosalind Franklin showing can up imagine. on his turf. And they did not get off to a good start. Um, yeah. Wilkins always kind of just thought of her as his assistant kind of oh, inferred that he she was working like, under him this is interesting because like we talked in the major barrett roddenberry episode about um you know whether the the debate over whether the fact that she didn't get picked up as her character on the pilot was sexism or because of like interpersonal conflicts and how it's probably a bit of both and i yeah it, it's it would be interesting to sort of like conduct mm-hmm. that thought experiment of like would Wilkins have reacted differently if a man had done this? I know? somewhat think he wouldn't have, but well, yeah. but you never know, right? You never like, know. It's hard to say, and like obviously, it was more than just this is a woman taking over. It was mm-hmm. obviously like, what the fuck? Yeah, <laughs> why didn't you guys tell me um, I was doing this shit? Right, but so I don't know if it was ever made clear to Wilkins that Rosalind was not his assistant and that they were kind of working together on this, or maybe that was what was on the official papers because you would, well the hostility to women, right? Yeah, I don't know because I mean Randall brought her in to utilize well, like she was the expert, she like knew yeah, a ton of shit, yeah. yeah. But he probably did kind of maybe punt the bill if he was questioned about like right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, not off to a good start at King's College, but um, Franklin also said uh, she <laughs> this could contribute to the situation. But uh, well, Rosalind Franklin was always described of having a very 
direct and almost argumentative style when talking about yeah, her work. Like, well, and that's the sort of thing that women needed to have to get right to get through that, right? right. Like, of course they did. But it also probably made them not very popular, right? And um, especially to men who weren't used to being spoken to that way by women. Yeah, is it? So they very much probably had to be like that, but apparently, I, don't, I also don't want to get. This is a tricky subject to broach, but do you think she might have had been on like the autism spectrum or something like that? I don't based on, based on her interactions and stuff that right. friends and have said. I don't want to say like, I also don't, well, but that's the thing too, is like not every autistic person is socially inept. Right. Like autism is a wide range of symptoms and it's, it's actually a, like autism is a catch all term for a lot of different, like uh, nearly different neuro, neuro, neurally diverse uh, behaviors, right. That are just sort of like some of them mm-hmm. are socially difficult and some of them aren't like there are autistic people who are very social and friendly right um i don't know it's just interesting like again like yeah no i I wouldn't have based on what i read i just think like it's it would be interesting to see like what people with autism think hey if you have autism and you have a theory on rosalind crick or rosalind franklin uh let us know yeah yeah um but i based on the stories i don't think she was her friends outside of the lab um described her as uh I have a I had a good quote in here somewhere. Um I'll get to it, I think. But no, I I would not have put her on the spectrum. Um I do think she was just a woman in this in yeah, this age. Yeah, absolutely. Well just uh, just that alone. And then even if Wilkins specifically wasn't sexist towards her, even if it was just more like who is this fucking person coming in and like stealing my thunder and taking over my lab, like even that hostility piled on every other form of hostility is not going to be any fun. Right. right? Exactly. So, yeah. Like I said, she was said to have a very direct and almost argumentative style when talking yeah. about her work. Uh, when Wilkins, like yeah, we, we call that the Socrates. Yeah. No. <laughs> and, and so apparently when, when Wilkins, when she would try to explain like procedures and stuff to Wilkins or try to explain why her work was like important and why she needed to like use Raymond to help her. Like Wilkins would just like tune her out and like shut down and like give her the oh silent treatment. Oh my God. Treatment. Yeah, that sucks. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, this wi- rivalry between Wilkins and Franklin's um, greatly contributed to her unhappiness in King's oh, College. Yeah. Although as we were talking about, I'm sure she extracted a great deal of unhappiness um, from the general sexist <laughs> culture yeah. of the time. Uh, at least towards women in science. Well, I'm sure he he was frustrated too. Like I I, I again like uh, he, on one hand he should have been more understanding of 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 the fact that she was a woman, but like nothing's more frustrating than like being yeah. promised a thing. Like, and then, like I I've I've had that where I'm like yeah I need the like I, I've been in positions where I've like had a PA helping me, and then it's like someone else asks them to do something else that's not officially right. on their workload, and. Totally. Just, and, and you can imagine the stakes are or something, someone above me. Yeah. And I'm just like, well, I can't do anything about that. Yeah. And so. you can imagine the stakes are just that much higher when you're doing pioneering research yes. in a and field that has the potential to like, yeah. They're probably wondering like, like the, the, the accountants and the people at the, whatever, whoever's funding them are like, what are, what's the results? Give us results. We need fucking results. Mm-hmm. And like, that's always the hardest thing. Right. right. So. And, and there was kind of, there was a race at this time with other right, colleges yeah. that were doing DNA research kind of to come up with the the form and structure of DNA. So yeah, it was a bit of a tense uh, climate for her to be uh, coming into. Um, a lot of Franklin's um, male co-workers uh, would typify like this haughty kind of uh, interaction with her. Um, and one of the things that 
was said is that she made too much eye contact during conversations. Oh my god. Scandalous, right? Fuck off. <laughs> Scandalous. <laughs> yeah. Um and yeah, we'll get I just in. like imagine them being like, She made too much eye contact. Yeah, this like, <laughs> she's challenging me. She's challenging me. <laughs> I had to fight her. <laughs> so things, as I said, not off to a great start. Oh my um, god. Imagine that though, like like constantly having to think about like even just that stress of like the subconscious stress of like did i look at him too long did i look away yeah. too long like well, this is the thing. there's I don't, no right answer i don't think she gave a fuck um, i think that's that's <laughs> it right but like but that doesn't mean that she like just because she doesn't give a fuck in the moment yeah doesn't mean that that stress doesn't weigh on her totally right? so, and yeah. and yeah to heart back to uh why i don't think that she was really on the spectrum is because though she was like being for very stern and serious professionally she did have friends outside the lab that remember as being you know, bright, witty, interesting, and dare I say, even fun. Um, Whoa, a scientist, a <laughs> yeah. nerd, right. fun, yeah. witty? It's unheard of. No. Um, yeah, but there was, uh, she did have Gosling on his side. She she pretty much, he came over. She He saw that, like, she's doing good work. She's getting good data. And I think um, he very much became an ally for her at King's College when, when wow. no one else there really was. But yeah, so uh, together, her and Gosling, uh, they started observing DNA uh, through the microscope and taking photographs using uh, Rosalind's um, crystallography techniques. And they discovered that uh, DNA looks quite different when it's either hydrated or dehydrated. And I didn't know that. Yeah. And Rosalind was actually the first to to note this, <laughs> that DNA has these two forms. And she she called them a form was the, the dehydrated form and B form would be the hydrated form. Well, that sounds like anime. Uh, a little like bit. Yeah. DNA a form. <laughs> this does sound like yeah. we're getting into like Evangelion territory. Yeah, exactly. A little bit. Um, uh, but yeah. So when what, like when we drink water. Like essentially, like, or is it, what does it mean? By no, no, hydrated? it's more so like outside of the body when they're taking like photographs of it. If you could have like the hydrated form, um, interesting, where you could it takes on slightly different <clears throat> shapes because like the the cells have like or the molecules have fluid and they're surrounded by fluid, so it looks differently under the microscope than than this dehydrated. Interesting. Form. Wow. And I think most people had only been seeing the the dehydrated form, the A form, but oh wow, um, okay. She introduced this method of hydrating it just by like adjusting humidity in the lab. Right, because it's like so small and microscopic that humidity yeah, would right. affect it. Yeah, <clears throat> so that's that's how she learned that um, it kind of takes on these two different structures that look different under the microscope. Um, yeah, and from those observations, she determined that the phosphate group, which is kind of the long chain of DNA, like the not the rungs, but the the long like um, the long the molecule. chains that the rungs are like attached exactly. to. Yeah, so she determined that. Um, those phosphate groups that make up the backbone of DNA actually run along the outside of the molecule, which would be a very important observation. Interesting. Because a lot of the models to that point had the had the phosphate group on the inside with like the DNA kind of just loosely point or the, oh, the crazy. Is just pointing out. To and these are like, like theoretical models. Yes, everything right? is okay. Everything yeah. is very theoretical at this point. And um yeah, so so this was kind of the first clue of as to the true structure. It's just interesting DNA. to think about like the, the intensity, like like even just the stress of like you're not only looking at like you're not only calibrating like fine tuned microscopes, mm-hmm. you're also calibrating like very fine tuned X rays. Yeah, like there's so many parts in the process where things can just like um um a, a just a, a tiny margin of error can make everything go so wrong. Right. right? Yeah, and, and give you like a false result. And right, like, and knowing just, that must be so like nerve-wracking just in general in work right 
And but that was the thing that she was really good at. She was really good at that that fine details and wow. and having very precise calculations, which is why I think she was so valued. But yeah, absolutely. Even though a lot of people didn't really appreciate her. Well, but. and just like the only way you can really get again, like like the fucking coal mining prospector dudes, the coal yeah. liquors. Like it's a thing that you have to develop over time. Like you have to get a sense of like and like know like oh, I've seen this mistake. I've seen this before. This is an error. Right. That's the only way you can get that is but through practice. Right. right? So, you, yeah, that's, yeah, that's probably part of what made her so useful was she'd, she'd done it so much and yeah. she was such an expert that she could tell like, no, no, this is wrong. We need to redo right. this. And so, we'll talk about that in, in a minute. But yes, she, she had a point like that where she, she totally was just like, you know, you're, you guys are fucking wrong pretty much. But Yes, yeah. spill the yeah. tea. Uh, so, yeah. She she noticed this thing with with DNA how the phosphates were um, phosphate groups were on the outside, um, and in 1951 she gave a talk about these findings. And James James Watson happened to be in attendance uh, at there. Uh, yes, American scientist James Watson, and so that was kind of his first introduction to Rosalind Franklin. Wow. Um, Watson um, and at that time Francis Crick was a graduate student that was working with him. Um, they were working uh, on their DNA project at the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge. Um, only they weren't working things out so much by by. So doing... this is the same college, but a different laboratory. No, so so Franklin's at King's College right now. Oh, King's College. But she okay. did go to Cambridge. Or okay, that's where she got her PhD. Right, right. Okay, so yeah. she'd been to Cambridge. Before. Okay, yeah. so they're working at a different school. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um. And so yeah, but they weren't. Their, their projects and experiments did not involve um, kind of doing these precise measurements and taking photographs and, and obtaining data through like calculations and observations. Their kind of procedure more so involved um, kind of just like building models based on the science that was known at the time. Right. Okay. And, yeah, it was and then theoretical. kind of, yeah, using more intuition and and imagination to, to build their models. And this is where that imaginative leap that I was kind of like talking, talking about earlier in the pod uh, comes into play because, because they were kind of just doing a bit more like guesswork and kind of throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks. It's funny too, because like that was like, that's totally the, the, um, the stereotype is like, <laughs> well, men are good with hard numbers and models and facts and right. women are men use their intuition right. and feelings right. more. And that's this a very is good clearly point. a case where it was the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. So this yeah, is, that's a great is, point. Yeah. Um, HBO, seriously, hire me to write this. <laughs> I will write the fuck out of this. Yeah. This would make a great program. Um, so Watson wasn't, he was at the lecture, but he wasn't really paying that close attention. Like stories are, he was reading a newspaper and like, huh, of he kind of, yeah. I think he had, he's kind of got at least this is my interpretation he has a very kind of condescending attitude towards towards rosalind franklin towards rosalind and women yeah, in general probably yeah very much so actually as was let's see when we cancel but later. is it because she's a woman or because she's jewish i think the fact that she's well probably both well yeah Watson's kind of a douche <laughs> a female jew in my laboratory yeah i yeah. never <laughs> yeah um, so yeah, he wasn't really paying close attention, but, um, he heard her mention, I don't know if she, she didn't have the picture of it. I think she might've had slides that showed a form DNA, Okay, yeah. but she did mention in this lecture kind of how she believed that the, the, uh, the, the polysaccharide yeah. should be, the phosphate chain should be on the outside. But when Watson got back to Crick, I don't think he was able to communicate this really effectively, huh. um, because their model, when they, when they put it together, it, it. Yeah, it had the it had the phosphate group up on the inside with the 
with the base pairs pointing out. Or maybe kind of he like just fucking missed that something. point, right? Like maybe he because maybe. he was reading a fucking he, yeah newspaper. he wasn't paying like close enough attention. Incel chud. Yeah, yeah. But then so yeah, it was about a week after that talk that um, Franklin and Wilkins were uh, invited to come to Cambridge to see Watson and Crick's model. Um, and Franklin could see immediately that this uh, shit was and she pointed out like in three points is like, well, this is supposed to be on the outside. Basically, this is whack and you need to fix this stuff right. and come back to I'm us. I'm pitching this to HBO. This is, that's the opening scene. <laughs> yeah. That's the opening scene of the entire series. <laughs> so we start with them unveiling this model uh-huh. and then this, this fucking Jew bitch comes <laughs> up and totally blows them away and they're like and everyone's just like what the fuck shut up and then we just hard cut to credits and then back to like her in like 1945 receiving her phd or whatever i think just saying just saying hbo it's a great opener hit me up (laughs) yeah so um yeah franklin tore their model to shit and it was kind of a a like in front of everybody in front of them at least fucking yeah yeah but i think other people were there too because um after that you know they weren't Watson and Crick weren't really allowed to do DNA modeling anymore. Oh their, my god! Their guy was like, "You guys fucked up. You're you're off this. Go work on oh proteins or something because this isn't working." That's hilarious, <laughs> yeah. and yet they got the fucking credit. Well, yeah. So she totally. I she, mean, I guess they did a bunch of work, but they whatever. did. And I'm not. I don't want to discredit that. Watson and Crick did do good work, and they did ultimately were the people that first posited this, but they didn't do it alone. Oh, well, um, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, even like she didn't really like she had so many people helping her. Right. But you could see at this point, like left to her own devices, she probably would she have probably come would have to this conclusion this on her own eventually before yeah, that's them. Interesting. Yeah. If they had never been exposed to her research, which we'll we'll talk about pretty soon. But I just want to say that, yeah, she basically tore their model to shit. They weren't allowed to do research anymore. So she, she was essentially the leader at that point. Wow. Um, that's cool. Yeah. Um, and one of one of the things that she sort of got hung up on, though, with her research was the helical structure of DNA, which we all know is kind of the iconic, like twisting yeah, shape yeah. Of, of DNA. Um, and other scientists at the time were already convinced that DNA was helical, but there was no evidence to back that up. And Rosalind's not going to not going to state any claims that got no evidence supporting right, it so she's like yeah. big on the the finding the, right like this is a fact right so she yeah. was she wasn't she wasn't gonna go ahead and say that dna she was destroys helical. people with facts and yeah. logic right so she, so she was like okay maybe it does but i'm not gonna i'm not gonna you know put that forth until i have more evidence oh it. so she got sort of obsessed with finding this evidence well yeah and then so i think she started doing some more work because this is the thing at at king's college her research was primarily focused on the A form of DNA. Right. And Wilkins was working more with the B form of DNA. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. So um, so when she did finally get a chance to study the the B form um, and, you know, took some did some imaging of it with her yeah. with her crystallography, um, she started to notice like, you know, it does have this kind of helical structure. Yeah. Um, and she started to base her kind of research and findings on that assumption. So she was definitely on the right track. And yeah, given enough time, she probably would have arrived at the same conclusions that that Watson and Crick did. Wow. Um, but before that could happen, something um, something astounding kind of happened and a little unfortunate because uh, Wilkins, who had, you know, kind of remained friendly with Watson and Crick um, since since Watson, since they visited their campus uh, to see uh, Franklin's lecture, um, he kind of took this 
the famous photograph. I think it, it was called Photograph 51, yeah. which is her B-form uh, one that showed uh, kind of showed this helical structure. Um, he took that photo oh. and showed it to Watson without Rosalind Wilkins, knowing. Wilkins, my dude. Yeah. Come yeah, on. Really, Bruh. really not cool. Bruh. Um, yeah. So he essentially stole her research. Um, um, and he was already kind of doing this kind of like essentially maybe spying, maybe for lack of a better word. Yeah. Um, just to kind of maybe stay ahead of her and make sure that he's, he's not going to get replaced or, or yeah. you know, sacked, uh, based on the work she was doing. Well, so she, she already like got those two other guys like taken off. Yeah. Like, she's <laughs> yeah, probably right. getting a reputation as like destroying people's careers. Right. Yeah. So I, maybe they, that <laughs> might have something to do with it. Maybe they felt they had to like kind of band together to, to know, get the recognition before she did. But yeah, in any case, that's what happened. Well, you can kind of, you can kind of see that sort of like maybe it started off on the wrong foot and then there was just sort of an escalation from there of like her them you know being sort of like appalled with her and frustrated with her and her sort of just being like shut the fuck up and do the fucking work already right and like again like she's up against institutional sexism but like that kind of behavior can just make people dig in their heels and and again like it's not again like pedagogy of the oppressed it's not her job to educate her oppressors but that clearly was sort of what escalated this and was their convenient excuse totally. to cut her out of the research. And she was like a hard to work with all that stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's actually, I should mention that this, at the time she had given that lecture that Watson attended to, she had actually already pretty much decided that she was going to leave King's college because the environment oh, was wow. so shitty. So Shit. she was already yeah. like on her way. So out. She's all, yeah. She's just like, I don't give a fuck kind of. Yeah. And so maybe that could have played into a role. Yeah. Maybe even if she, maybe she had knowledge that they did, you know, see her work. She was just like, you know what? If I don't do this, I'm going to leave here and I'm going to get blamed. Right. Like that might have been part of it too. That could have been it too. And again, like, but there is, there is this kind of, um, it's not 100% known how much she knew that they had seen her research. I don't think she, right. Okay. I don't think she did know that they had seen that photograph, at least not until later in her Yikes. life um, bikes on bikes yeah but it said that uh when watson did see that photo he was dumbfounded and he had his eureka moment because um it said that his jaw immediately dropped and his pulse began to race that's a quote from watson's book wow. um so yeah he rushed back to, to crick uh to tell him what he had learned and so and he saw this because wilkins showed it to yeah. him and wilkins was probably a little like oh i got this photo here yeah it's it's un, it's <clears> unclear <throat> exactly what wilkins motives were um because it's like they were kind of yeah. competing but they didn't they weren't necessarily sharing knowledge but i think that they had become friendly and so he kind yeah, of for m- sure. saw this more as just a casual like hey like maybe this will help you with your research yeah but yeah either way not cool um so not yeah cool at all uh, so he rushes back to Crick, shows them like, I've got it. Like this is, it's helical. It's got the structure. And then, um, they were able to reference some of Franklin's previously published work, which was published in, in, uh, a journal of wow. medicine research. That's interesting. And too. then from her previously published work combined with that photograph, they were kind of able to see, see what she was getting at. And from there, right, they okay, were able yeah. to build, complete their <clears throat> erroneous model, um, within about a week. Uh, like complete it like make it accurate correct it and make it yeah yeah interesting and um so yeah in april 1953 watson and crick published one of the best known scientific papers um of 
of any time, I think, which was wow. uh, is called A Structure of the Deribonucleic Acid. And that was published in uh, the journal Nature. Um, and in it, they describe wow. the double helix DNA molecular model. And and we know today that, um, you know, with those double twisting strands forming the latter um, with the base pairs, um, kind of the ACTG adenine, cyanine, guanine, thymine, um, those form the runs. of the Those water. are all words. I understand yeah, words. Yeah, yeah there's, there's the, you know the bases. You're a science guy. Just the bases. Um, yeah, so then, so it wasn't long after that that Roslyn left King's College uh, due to the tense, competitive, and highly sexist environment that uh, was going Ooh. on there. Um, and she, yeah, she got a new job. Uh, this was at Birkbeck College. Um, and there she turned her attention to the study of viruses, and she made a number of also, like, very substantial discoveries in that field of molecular biology. It's crazy. It's so cool. Like, I just, like this woman was just, like, a, a discovery machine. She was... She, She's one of my favorite scientists, and I think it's she's so fascinating. Definitely one like, of the greatest scientists. Well, and clearly, like you said, like she was so focused on just like yeah, getting getting verifiable results. Um, right. That like just like really like in a way like you see why she sort of got left behind because she clearly didn't necessarily like care to or know how to sort of advocate for herself outside of just right. Look at my discovery. Like this is an important discovery, and that definitely like. Like, or maybe she didn't care. Maybe at the time she didn't think it mattered, right? Like, yeah, she was, and this is the thing that, that I, I love so much about her is she was definitely more concerned with just doing good science and getting accurate results, results about nature that she, she wasn't concerned about the recognition. She, yeah, it's almost like she didn't mind that, you know, well, I'm not gonna say she didn't mind because I don't well, know yeah, if she and knew, again, like, but she well, wasn't. And- she wasn't like frazzled that you know Watson and Crick came out with this model. She she went and visited the college to look at their correct model, and she was like, "Yeah, that looks right. Like, good job." Nice. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so like that's inter- that's an interesting fact, right? Yeah. Like maybe she didn't even realize, or like again, like we talk about this. Like, I wonder how many scientists just sort of know that that's the case. That like they may not get credit, yeah. you know, and they just like are like they have to almost like mentally like attune themselves to like it's not about it's not about that. Yeah. And, and, and it isn't about that in a lot of ways for scientists, right? Like that's, the greatest ones. Yeah. are shouldn't, well, at least my favorite ones were not as much concerned with the glory. As yeah. And it's because, and because they humanity. weren't concerned about necessarily winning a Nobel prize or mm-hmm. like they were concerned about doing really good science that they did so much. Like she has, she's clearly done so many things that advance science in a lot of ways. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So she's in Birkbeck college now. Yeah. So she's at Birkbeck college and um what is she doing at Birkbeck oh yeah she's she's studying viruses and in 1956 um she was actually she was on a trip in America I believe and uh she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer sadly wow um probably from working with x-rays it wasn't it wasn't known at the time but it's highly suspected well that's how like so many like people who it just wasn't known how damaging um radiation from x-rays it isn't damaging with limited exposure it's like the constant exposure all the time and and she she didn't really wear much protection didn't wear like gloves or lead vests when she was taking her, her photograph so um so yeah that that definitely probably um you know triggered the ovarian cancer but she didn't let that really slow her down. Like even while she was undertaking surgery, that's interesting too. Cause like this is 1956. This mm-hmm. is not like, 
This is not like uh like even the eighties, right? Where they yeah. had really started like this would have been probably she probably just would have had to get her ovaries removed. Like, yeah. That's probably how they did it. I don't know. Like, I, I get it's probably what the surgery was. Um yeah, all I know is that she was experiencing like incredible abdominal pains and then when she got back to London, she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. She underwent some surgeries and some other treatments, all of which during she kept plugging away at her research. Yeah. She was working on um, a model of the tobacco mosaic virus, which at the time had been uh, wreaking havoc with, uh, you know, one of the country's most lucrative uh, Man, agricultural products. She loves working, she loves working for companies that <laughs> right? give you lung cancer. <laughs> so She's working for big coal, big tobacco. Yeah, but, but I mean, that's where the money is. I mean, that's something we should talk about, too, right. is like yeah. science is very affected by where funding goes for it. And the 100%, truth is yeah. most science is conducted by big business. Yeah. Those, that's the people who have the money to really conduct. And right. their focus is improving their product. And uh, finding and, out ways that they can somewhat, sometimes skirt social responsibilities. Um, and not only that, like like covering up results that may may cause them to lose money. Exactly. That's yes. the other thing. They can sort of control. And even beyond just that, um, the influence that will have on the direction a scientist's work goes is enormous, even without any intentional suppression, right? Yeah, definitely. So, But, you know. Yeah, I mean, to again... That's that's probably more true now today than ever. Uh-huh. And we don't also know just because she she cured this mosaic virus for tobacco. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if she cured it, but she did. Well, she found she a way a lot to of work combat that, it or whatever. Yeah, yes, I think she did. It doesn't mean that that didn't get applied to other crops too, right? Oh, for sure. Like, and she did that. That work was yes transferable to to other plants, and she did she did work on other plants like a some kind of cucumber thing and yes. cucumbers. Yeah. Wow. I don't, I don't That's know exactly. so cool. <laughs> but yeah, she did work with other plants and, and viruses that attack them. Um, so yeah, she did, she did a lot of great work. Um, even, even after her work on DNA, when she did work on plant viruses, but sadly, um, that would be short lived. And just days after, I think it was just three days after she completed her model of the tobacco mosaic virus, which was to be revealed at the uh, 1958 World's Fair. Wow. Which was the first World's Fair, I think, since World War II. Yeah, so sadly, she she did pass away on April 16th, 1958, um, just three days before um, her, her tobacco mosaic virus model would have been revealed at the World's Fair. Oh, brutal. So yeah, just... Sh- Plugged away right up until her death. Um, she was only 37 when she died. Hey, I'm um, noticing a common uh, theme uh, here between about w- women who work in hostile fields and uh, working up till the day they die. Yeah. Yeah. It's just. Yeah. But I mean, that just shows the fact that, you know, she was working with x-rays all this time. When well, She was what? Like 1958? 30, yeah, she was 37. So she's 37 years old. Mm-hmm. Like. Jesus, like that's so that's I like that's I'm four years away from I'm three years away from being her age when she died. Think about the things she accomplished. And and but also like it's interesting, like a 37 year old probably with ovarian cancer is probably like much more equipped to like battle it till the day she dies than like Mm. a a 60 year old with cancer. Right. It's interesting. Yeah, you think. Um, But like, yeah, it's like, yeah. But she yes. kind of like she did work herself to death. Yeah. Like, and she literally gave her life one, like to her right? science. Like it was. Yeah. It was the techniques and procedures that she was using that ultimately led to her death. And even, even though she may have been unwilling at the well, time. And she like, kept working like she could have, you know, taken time off and rested. And maybe that would have, you know, probably not because you know, considering the time period and mm-hmm. what they could do for cancer at the time, like it may have gotten her a few more years. Right. Yeah. 
that's it. But like, you know, like she couldn't probably, she probably couldn't like, that's probably who she was. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah, she literally devoted her life and gave her life for science. Um, yeah. So in 1962, this, you know, a few years after her death, Watson and Crick and Wilkins, um, they all received the Nobel prize for discovering the structure of DNA. None of them mentioned Franklin as a contributor. Um, but her contributions, like they might have gone completely unnoticed if it weren't for Watson's book that was that was later published about you know his DNA discovery, um, and in it though he he definitely painted Rosalind in a less than positive light. Um, he's quoted as saying, "She didn't know how to deal with other people. Didn't know how to ask for help. She was paranoid about other people stealing her data." Gee, I wonder why. Man. Why I wonder? Why, why, yeah, why, why, like that's <laughs> that's ridiculous, Watson. Why would she be paranoid about that? You fucking data stealer um every yeah. time i told her to smile she didn't do it <laughs> yes. you know seriously uh yeah female like yeah. watson pro- i bet watson has said females like the ferengi have multiple yeah. times oh my god yeah um and actually yeah this would be a good time let's just get into that article from watson and let me okay uh just to give you an idea of of what's what's been going on with james watson in in the later stages of his life so he was stripped he founded uh mra culture um <laughs> i mean jesus wouldn't be surprised me but he was stripped of his titles um, wow okay. his honorator titles from cold spring harbor uh which is a long island based non-for-profit research institution long linked with the scientist um so basically um watson's accomplished accomplishments including his role in the discovery of dna's double helix structure have long been overshadowed by his unsubstantiated and reckless personal opinions um so <laughs> he was always he always did kind of have this eugenics right, full on, kind of thing yeah. in the background um and it was usually related to africa he had this inherently gloomy about the prospect of africa because all our social policies are based on the fact that their intelligence is the same as ours whereas all the testing says not really so oh my god yeah he's saying is this the guy that wrote the bell curve or is this a different no i don't think so okay either way he's he's tying this he's tying intelligence to IQ tests, which we already know yeah, are totally flawed, flawed and can really only be used uh, against, you know, white people in Western culture. Well, and even then it's like, yeah, it's like a, a testing a very specific type of sort of like in like, what is it like? There's like, what is intelligence really? Right. Like, that's such a complex question. And like intelligence is relative to your environment. Because yes. like the the intelligence of a scientist is not going to be useful to someone living in the deep country right. where they have to run from bears. And there's been you know? like there's been so many studies that show that you know but intelligence is more like, closely linked to environment than yeah. genetics. And again, like yeah, like clearly this is like this was his bone to pick, right? Yeah, and and so yeah, there's other stuff that he said. He's like he's like he keeps on like harping back to stuff like libido and claiming that. That's why you have Latin lovers, and you've wow. never heard of an English lover, huh. and like so English you... English people don't fuck. <laughs> they yeah. don't fuck clearly. They just grow babies in test tubes. Yeah, and and just and to get into some of his views about women and and Rosalind Franklin, um, this further plays into his prejudicial stereotypes. Uh, he says that female scientists, while making work more fun for the men, are oh. probably less effective. Even Franklin was not immune to his 
diatribes. Um, oh wow! So he's like he gave her he like was yeah. Like, so this is this is what um, a writer for Vox said about Watson's 1968 book uh, called The Double Helix. Um, in it, he describes Franklin as not unattractive, but failing to take even a mild interest in clothes and oh the accentuation God. of her feminine qualities. Oh fuck yeah. So, so yeah, Watson's pretty much canceled and Watson, should, you're canceled. Yeah. We're calling it. We're we calling should, it. We should just give all, all the praise that was, was given to him to Rosalind. And maybe a little to Crick. I don't know. Maybe yeah, Crick, actually Crick, Crick, Crick wasn't too bad. He was actually, he was pretty friendly with Rosalind and, and I think they, they remained somewhat friends, although like, like more, I guess, colleagues you could say. Yeah, for sure. But that's um, interesting yeah, too. Crick, Crick was nowhere near as bad as Watson and it was actually like, he didn't, he he wasn't the one that like really stole her work. I guess he did know that it came from her, so he probably well he could have given her know. some credit. Um, but but yeah, you know I, what? We're just we'll cancel him just to okay. Be we'll can, just, just to be, be sure, we'll cancel him. Watson, too. Crick, Crick you, you cancel. Uh, you're canceled. Wilkins is on probation. Yeah, but um, um, Rosalind thankfully is getting some more recognition. Well, now. clearly now that's yeah. great, but she's dead. Yeah. So. so yeah, since her death, King's College and Cambridge have both named residence halls after her. That's nice, um, you know. Yeah, other universities have named departments and fellowships after her. She does now finally have a portrait um, that resides in uh, the National Portrait Gallery of London. Um, but best of all, um, my favorite uh, new Rosalind Franklin <laughs> tribute came uh, just early this year, I think, in Ju- January 2019, when uh, the European Space Agency named their new uh, Exo Mars rover, which is designed to search for life. They named it Rosalind Franklin. Actually, they did that because on her deathbed, she was like, name a robot after me. <laughs> I mean, that uh, is that is my dying wish as well. Yeah. Or turn me into a robot. Please, actually just, would be even please better. Just, yeah, like, like if you're going to do anything, name a space robot after me, please. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's Rosalind Franklin. Wow. Yeah. Um, intense. Honestly, wow. Yeah. 37 years old. 37 yeah. years of her life. And you think about it, like, most of that was accomplished, like, post-25. So yeah, it was, and most the, of the major breakthroughs she made were in like the last decade of her life. Right, and everything, like the DNA stuff, that was just two years out of her life. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and I mean, again, like this is the what we're saying is like she made these crucial discoveries that allowed so many other scientists to build. Like, like hers is the foundation that an entire science is now built on. Right, essentially, and the science of DNA and like genetics. Yeah. Right, and yeah, just to go full circle to our conversations at the top, like now, we're seeing this lead to discoveries that I think within the next decade are going to revolutionize the world oh. on much the same scale that like the internet revolutionized the yeah. world in the nineties. Absolutely. Yeah. Or you know, even like transistors revolutionized uh, computing. Yeah. yeah, it's you know. Yeah, it's like a, it's like those things like people call them hinges that history turns on kind of mm, thing. Yes. I think that's an like because that's one way to view history, right? It's ah. like these sort of periods and then these hinges where history turns or whatever and like whatever. It's not perfect terminology, but like yeah, like there are so you can and I don't know if that's mostly like just the way we think about things, but like clearly this was a watershed moment mm-hmm. for for biology and chemistry yeah. in particular, um, and for for the science of like of genetics and DNA. So it's, it's really interesting to see someone like, and, and to, to sort of know, like she didn't really get the credit until recently. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she is one of the true unsung heroes, I think of the scientific community. Um, but it is, it is good to see that, that, you know, now that we have, you know, all kinds of podcasts and things like that, that, you know, people are starting to say like, you know, 
we should we should uh we should, we should, we should talk we should, about her more and talk about women scientists yeah yeah and i think we will like um I know I've got a bunch on my list that I want to talk to. Yeah, so. that's cool. That's really good. So we'll definitely talk about some more female scientists in future pods. Yeah. Also, uh, Craig wasn't here today. I don't know if you folks yeah. noticed his absence. We're sorry we didn't mention it earlier. Yeah. Really sick. Uh, I'm a little sick myself, but as you probably heard in the background. I'm not sick. Yet. Yet. Yes. But uh, I'll be sick for the next pod. Thanks again for listening to Second Bananas. Uh yeah. We, I believe next episode we will be talking about Peter Tosh and Bob Marley. Ooh, and the Whalers. Yeah, so that'll be interesting. Get your, get your reggae ready. Um, so stay get tuned for that. Ready? That doesn't make sense. Um, and, get it ready anyway. Uh, where can people find you, Wes? Uh, you can find me online on Twitter at Wes Walcott and Instagram at Wes Walcott. And you can find me, I'm at Stop Joe Now on both Twitter and Instagram. Um, other than that, uh, you can probably eventually we're going to get a, a Twitter or an Instagram for, for this podcast, but for now, just, uh, yell at us directly and yeah, we'll, yeah, yeah. we'll, we'll make the podcast better. Uh, yeah. Uh, also, we would love to hear suggestions. So please, uh, s- send us your suggestions for, for, uh, people to do, and we will look into them. We can't guarantee we're going to do them, but sure, we'd yeah. love to hear them. Love so to yeah. Take suggestions. Let us know All what right. you want to hear about. Okay. Well, that's, so, the that's it. Are you a new DM? Are you an experienced DM? Doesn't matter. Listen to DMs of Vancouver for great DMing advice. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.